Well, today, believe it or not, we are on part seven of our Family Values sermon series. And what a journey we've been on these last few weeks as we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And we've been looking at the teachings of Jesus, uh, more often than not, his interactions with people, whether they're the religious leaders, whether they are his disciples, uh, whether they are people that are you know, coming to him because they need a touch from him. Maybe they're sick or they're ill or there's some issue that they have in their lives. And here we get to read these incredible accounts and we get to look at the values that he instills in his people. And while we're doing that, while we're looking at his values and what he's teaching, we can also look at our own lives and we can ask ourselves, well, do the values that Jesus says we should have, do they actually align with what we have in our lives? And so today we're going to be looking at serving. Do you think serving would be a good value to have as a family? Right? How many of you, you teach your kids to serve? Right? And what does that look like? What does that look like for you? How do you model serving in your home? How do you model that you know, in your marriage? How do you model that in the way that, that you live your life? And today it's going to be kind of interesting to just watch a very peculiar passage of Scripture, an interaction that Jesus actually has with some of his closest followers, two of his closest disciples. Uh, but before we do that, isn't it interesting how, how often in life that we need to be reminded of things over and over and over again? Has anyone ever noticed that? Guys in here, do any of you have this thing where, you know, you'll wake up the next morning and you'll have a conversation with your wife and she'll say, don't you remember we just talked about this the night before? And you say, I, I have no recollection that we ever even had that conversation. Anybody, any other guys struggle with that? None of you, just me? Okay, oh, there are some honest guys here. So I'm not the only one, that's good. Um, you know, and it's interesting because as the older we get, sometimes the more forgetful we get. Sometimes, you know, we just, we just need those reminders over and over and over again, which is exactly what we're going to see in our scriptures today, how patient and loving our God really is with us. And you're going to see how patient and loving he is, even with his own disciples. And even though they get it wrong, believe it or not, over and over and over again, he never stops loving them. He never stops extending his grace and his mercy. And he understands his mission. He understands what God has called him to do. And so today we're going to be uh, just following along uh, with the next part of Mark chapter 10. Hopefully you guys are all still on this journey together with us. You guys all doing the readings at home, right? Awesome job. If you're new to Shepherd's Gate, you can grab one of these cards uh, on your way out and you can just join us now where we're at. But we're going to turn to page 846 in our chair Bibles that are right in front of you. Um, or if you're in the front row, that are underneath the seat. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 10. This is actually the third week of us being on Mark chapter 10. So Mark chapter 10 is a, an important chapter. Uh, and we're not going to even get to everything in Mark chapter 10. So I would encourage you, the last section of Mark chapter 10, make sure you read that at home this week. But we're going to be starting in the 32nd verse, so Mark 10, verse 32, page 846. And you might notice in the header on this, it actually says this is the third time, right? The third time that Jesus is foretelling what is about to happen to him. Now think about the repetition of that, right? Mark has already put it in his gospel. We're only in 10 chapters, twice before. And so it starts in verse 32 and says, And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. All right, so Mark is this linear writer, and so he starts off his gospel by talking about all the incredible things that Jesus did out in the country, and now he's on this journey to Jerusalem. He's on this journey to die for you and for me. And it says, he was walking ahead of them, right? He's a good leader. And they were amazed, that's one of Mark's favorite words to use in his writings, they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Well, why are they amazed? Why are they amazed? Well, they're amazed because Jesus actually had hits out on his life. People wanted to kill him. 
And so the disciples were amazed at his boldness, at his confidence to be leading the pack, to be walking toward Jerusalem, which is exactly where the people are that want to kill him. That's how confident and bold of a leader Jesus was. And those who have followed him were afraid. Why? Because they were afraid of losing their lives as well. They're like, man, they're going to take you out, and they're not really happy that we're following you. And so this is kind of this crazy journey now. We're going toward Jerusalem. We're going toward this thing. And he says this. He takes the 12, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to them, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. He's telling them, this is where we're going. And the Son of Man, me, is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Or another way to look at that is the Romans. So the Romans were the rulers at the time. And they will mock him spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. This is the third time that Jesus is telling you this. All right? And you're going, wait a second. What's happening here? We're going to go, and they're going to do what? And you're going to be delivered over to who what? And they're going to do what to you? And then three days later, like they didn't actually click with them. They didn't really truly understand his words. But what this does for you and for me is it shows you that Jesus actually is God. That he knows everything past, present, and future, including his own life. And this is actually a comfort to us that God actually knows your tomorrow. God actually knows what's going to happen in your life next week, next month, and next year. And that doesn't take away your free will. You still have free will to do things. And even though our minds don't completely understand how this all works, we trust in what God tells us in his word, that his ways are higher than our ways, that he's just a little bit smarter than us, amen? And he can see into the future. He can even see into his future for himself. And so that's exactly what's taking place here. And you're going to see how this repetition plays out in our passage today. Because as we continue to read in verse 35, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Isn't that wild? How many of you, you have, your, have your kids ever done this, your grandkids ever done this, where they come up to you and they say, hey, I, I just want you to say yes to this thing. You know, I just want you to say yes. I want you to promise me you are going to say yes. And what do you say? You look back and you say, we haven't even told me what you want yet, right? And they're like, trust me, you don't even need to know what I'm asking you for. All you need to do is just say yes or sign this piece of paper because it's so incredible, it's so awesome, there's no way that you'll ever say no. So just say yes right now, right? Has anyone ever had kids or grandkids say that to you? All right, these are grown adults that are asking Jesus this. I want you to think about that. Grown adults saying, teacher, we want you to do for whatever we ask of you. And he says to them, even though he knows what they're going to ask, what do you want me to do for you? And they say to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Wow. Kind of an interesting interchange here, right? Kind of an interesting, you know, exchange between two of Jesus' closest disciples and himself. Think about this. James and John, the three closest people to Jesus were Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John are the guys that got to be there during the transfiguration, right? Peter, James, and John are the guys that Jesus is going to pull aside a little bit further, closer to him in the garden on the night he's betrayed when he prays. He leaves the rest of the disciples a little bit further, but he only takes those three just a little bit closer and throughout Scripture, these three guys, really, that's his inner circle. This, he, these are the people that are so close to him, and yet the people that are closest to him, the people that you would think would resemble Jesus the most, are struggling with pride. They're struggling with their ego. And they don't understand all that this entails of following Jesus. In fact, they think they're going to Jerusalem because Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman government, 
that he's going to become the king of the land and that they're all going to become these really powerful people and be in these positions where they get to rule over people. So before they get to Jerusalem, they just want to make sure everything's set for them. I mean, just think how selfish this is, right? They want to make sure that Jesus knows, hey, just out of the 12, we've already kind of talked. Well, at least James and I have talked. And so out of the 12, the other 10, they're just not as smart as us. They're not as good looking as us. You should probably put us on the left and the right of you. So that way when people come and we establish this kingdom, everybody knows, I mean, come on, let's be honest, that it's, that it's us that have these things together. But look at what Jesus says to him. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Which is always an interesting response, right? Are you able to drink this cup? And to be honest with you, they had no clue what he was talking about when he said this. Or to be baptized the way that I'm baptized. They had no clue what he was talking about. But yet, look at their response. What did they say to him? We are able. Arrogance. Pride. The pride of life, right? The, the fact that they actually think that they can do whatever it is that Jesus is instructing them to do and that they can be on par with Jesus. And that's not the case at all. In fact, the reason that Jesus is actually having this interaction and saying, yeah, guess what? You are going to drink of the cup that I drink is because this refers to persecution. See, once again, Jesus being able to see into the future knows his own persecution, knows that he's going to the cross, knows that he's going to die for you and for me and pay a price that we can't pay for ourselves. But he's also able to see into the future and he knows that when he raises from the dead and he gets these guys in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes on them and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit and then all of a sudden they go out and they begin to preach the gospel that they are going to be persecuted. Jesus knew their future just like he knows our future. And they're going to be baptized just as he knew that was going to take place. And so here they have this exchange and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared. Has been prepared. Now what's really interesting is the other ten are kind of watching this whole interchange, right? So think about this. If you're one of the other disciples, you're probably not happy that these two are vying for the left and right of Jesus, right? And so it actually says when the other ten, when the ten heard it, they began to become indignant at James and John. Not because they think it's selfish that they're asking Jesus to be on his left and the right. They're upset because they want to be on Jesus' left and right. And James and John just beat them to it. See, they were all dealing with this attitude. They all had this prideful spirit within them. And Jesus called all of them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Basically, is this the kingdom that you want me to establish? Just like the Romans and how much everyone hates the Romans and how much they're, they're dictators, everybody, is that what you think is going to happen? We're just going to overthrow them? And now we're going to be the dictators? I'm going to be the dictators? And because you're my 12 disciples, we're going to be the dictators of everybody? But instead, he flips it completely around on them. In fact, this isn't the first time that Jesus had to have this conversation with them. This isn't the first time that Jesus had to correct their prideful attitude. If you just rewind one chapter, check this out, in Mark chapter 9, this is what was taking place with Jesus and disciples. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, think about this, they're on this journey together. They get to Capernaum, they're in the house. Jesus asked them, hey, what was that you were discussing on your way? Even though we know he knows the answer, he knows what they were discussing. Look at what these guys do. They keep silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus' disciples, think about that. 
Guys that are watching him perform these miracles and heal the sick and raise it and do all these incredible things. And yet, literally, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be connected to Jesus the most. It's that prideful, sinful attitude, right? And this is part of the Bible that's so intriguing to us. It's part of the reason we point to it and go, no one in their right mind, if they were trying to make a story up, would ever cast themselves in such a dark light. In fact, as we look in the Gospels, we can see the transparency of the disciples that they made sure that they got the story correct, that they were willing to even show when they screwed up, when they got it wrong, when they allowed pride to get into the way. And this is another prime example of this. And so in chapter 9, he says he sits down with them and he calls the 12 to him and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be what? Of all. I want you to remember that. Of all. And servant of all. Think about that. And they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it when they were in Capernaum. They still didn't get it. And here they are. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And it still hasn't sunk in. I couldn't help but think about that in our lives today. Think about how many of us, right, me included, deal with pride. Deal with making ourselves the attention of everything that we do and everything that we are. Do you ever notice that in our society? Right? Maybe this will help you out this morning. If I were to leave church today with you, and I was just to be a passenger in the passenger seat of your car, I would just buckle in, I wouldn't say anything, but I just watched your driving habits as you left on 23 Mile. Okay? Not, I'm just there, I got my little notebook and pencil. What would I learn about you? Would I learn that you are the servant of all? Would I learn that you have no problem getting to the traffic light last? When you turn left, those of you that turn left out of the parking lot, would you stop in front of Walmart and let every last car out of the parking lot because you want to make sure you are last of all? Even if it's irritating the people behind you that want to keep moving in traffic, right? Like, think about this in your life. What about in your marriage? How do you treat your spouse? Do you serve your spouse? Remember what Ed Dorner said a couple weeks ago, how every single morning he wakes up and he makes his wife a cup of coffee, whether he likes her or not, and he puts it next to her bedside? Anybody ever actually start doing that? Anybody, just out of curiosity? A couple people. You actually started to make, wow, very good. What is that in your life? I'll tell you mine when I come home from work and I'm tired and I've, you know, I'm just exhausted from the day and I look at the kitchen sink and my wife has already made dinner, and we eat dinner, and then I see all the dishes, and then I see the real comfortable couch in our living room. Can you guess which one I go to? How did you know the couch? Right? More often, and even though that's what I'm called to do, I'm called to help, I'm called to serve my spouse, right? How about when it comes to our kids? See, so often we, we kind of confuse this one, you know, like we, we become obsessed with serving them when it becomes things like sporting events, right? Or competitions and how competitive of a culture we live in. I mean, I, sometimes it's surprising what actually comes out of our hearts. Or when somebody wrongs our kid, or a teacher gives our kid a grade that we don't like, or a teacher does something in a class we don't like, right? And then all of a sudden we're loaded for bear, we're ready to take that teacher out. A teacher, someone that went into to a profession to help, you know, raise children and we want to take them out. Or how about a coach? How many times have we seen parents want to take out a coach because they made a change in the lineup or they did something they didn't agree with? 
You might remember uh, last year, uh, I told you that when I came back from the mission trip in Belize, that I found out that my oldest son, Henry, who was in uh, first grade at the time, had signed me up to be the coach of his baseball team. Do you remember that? And I blew up. I was like, this is crazy. And I yelled at my wife and I said, what are you doing? I don't, I don't even know how to play baseball. I don't have time for this. And she said, are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to break his heart? Are you going to be the one that's going to you know, tell him you're not going to coach his team? And lo and behold, I was the head coach of Henry's uh, team. And luckily, they let Brady play on the team last year as well. And so as many of you know, I was in Honduras. At the same, same time, I was in Honduras. And I came back from Honduras. You're not going to believe this. But my family decided that I shouldn't just coach one team this year. I should coach two teams. Because they're on two different teams now. One's in the rookie division and one's in the t-ball division. And I looked at my wife and I said, I, you, what, do you, what, do you, what more do you want from me? Right? I am a drink off. I have nothing left to give. And this is literally what she said. Uh, she just looked at me and said, you just need to trust God. You need to trust God. <laughs> family values, Tim. That's a sermon series you're on. Family values. <laughs> Serve your family. So thanks be to God. I, who knows if this is going to work out or not. I'm signed up to coach two teams. We'll see. I'll let you know how it goes in a few weeks. But think about that. My first instinct is not to want to do that. Your first instinct is not want to. I mean, we're just so intrinsically selfish people, always looking out for our own interest. And it comes back to this fallen sinful nature that we wrestle with. And it's something that we have to be able to overcome. And so really what's kind of interesting is as we read Scripture, we find out that God actually hates pride. And he used that word on purpose because you're going to see as it plays out in the Scriptures in a few moments. But he actually honors humility. He hates pride. Now think about this as, a, as it's a family value for you. What are you passing on to your kids and your grandkids? Are you passing on humility or are you passing on pride? This is what it says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech. This is God saying it, I hate. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Wow. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Or how about later on in chapter 21, haughty eyes and a proud heart the lamp of the wicked are what? Sin. And if it's sin, then it needs to be dealt with. If it's sin, it needs to be called out. If it's sin, it needs to be repented. In fact, in the New Testament, it says it this way, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Three things there, but the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Every time you and I, that pride wells up within us and we put ourselves above somebody else and we're not willing to do what God has actually called us to do, which is to serve our families, to serve our spouses, to serve those in our community, it is from the world. Make no mistake. In fact, James 4 said that God actually opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again, what is the value that we are going after here? It's interesting because there are so many, you talk about repetition, there are so many scriptures that I could quote to you this morning. In fact, I actually cut some of them out of the slides uh, for time's sake. But just go and Google humility in the Bible or pride in the Bible. The New Testament over and over and over again told us to put on humility, to be clothed with humility, to walk in humility. That's our calling from God. That's what he's asked each and every one of us to do. 
You know, what's interesting is I wish I could actually tell you that this interaction in chapter 10 with the disciples was the last time that Jesus had to tell them. You know how when you're a parent and you're like, listen, this is the third and final time I'm going to tell you this and you better get it right or I'm taking you out, right? (laughs) We say this to kids, by the way. And look at the patience and the grace and the mercy of our God because even in these moments, even as we've seen here now, he's had to tell them twice. We find out in Luke that even as they're at the Passover meal, they didn't get it right. Even as they're gathered on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed because they don't understand yet the significance of this moment, we find out in Luke that a dispute arose among them. And what are they arguing about? Which of them is going to be regarded as the greatest? Isn't that crazy? Do any of you remember what Jesus did while these disciples are going at each other? while they're fighting with each other, while they're refusing to serve each other. In fact, part of the argument was about who was going to wash whose feet. There's a little clue for you. And what does Jesus do? He goes and he gets the towel and he gets the basin and he silences the room by bending down and doing one of the most humble things you could possibly do on the planet. Wash somebody's feet. A position that's served for a, a, a saved for a servant. Somebody that's low on the totem pole. That would be their job. And yet here's the savior of the world dealing with the disciples who over and over and over again are fighting about who's going to be the greatest even though over and over and over again he's telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be taken captive. They're going to do this to me and then I'm going to die on the cross and I'm going to rise again. Man, he is so patient and gracious and merciful to you and to me. And I want you to see how our text ends this morning. This is how... It plays out in Mark chapter 10. Jesus tells them, it shall not be so among you. Personalize that for yourself this morning. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, or not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about that. The price that Christ paid for you and for me, the example that he has left us, this this opportunity to even read through the gospel of Mark where over and over and over again we see these interactions with Jesus and with people that are no different than us, people that have struggles just the same way we do. And you know the number one way to break that spirit of pride in your life? You know how you do this? You serve. You willingly give up your time for the benefit of somebody else. You know how you break the spirit of greed in your heart and your life? You give your money away. Remember we talked about that last week. That is the number one way to get greed out of your heart and your life is to take your hard-earned money and what you possess and what you have that you've worked so hard for and to give it to somebody else. That breaks the spirit of greed in your heart and your life. And again, I'm going to say it. The way to break pride in your heart and your life is to serve. Sacrificially serve someone. And so as I was thinking about this message this week, maybe this was what would help us really truly see to what level we could do this. That maybe, just maybe, we would serve and serve at a capacity that we would be slave of all. Right now, I want you to think of the person in your life that drives you crazy the most? Who is the person that you would just like, you are frustrated by them, you talk about them, let's be honest, sometimes you talk behind their back, you might vent to your spouse about this person, maybe they're in your home. Maybe you share a bed with them, I don't know, right? 
Maybe it's somebody at work that just drives you up a wall. Maybe it's somebody in your community. Maybe it's your name. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's me, all right? Could be me. And I want you to think about, think about it because everyone has these people in, in their lives. People that just great your every nerve. You're just like, man, I can't stand this person. I don't like this person. God, why is this person in my life? And I want you to think now about how you could serve that person. What could you do to take the person that drives you crazy the most, that you're frustrated with, that you're angry, maybe you're angry with them, maybe they hurt you or they hurt your family or they did something wrong. How in the world would God challenge your heart? Because if doing that, that is what breaks that stronghold of pride in a person's life. How would you serve them and would you actually be willing to figure out a way to do that this week? Because here's the truth for you and for me is that we're being watched. Our kids are watching us in the home, how we interact with each other. Our grandkids, right? They're watching how we interact with those around us. The people at work probably, hopefully, know that you're a Christian and that you go to church. People in your neighborhood, I hope they know that you're a Christian and that you go to church. And it's not that we have to get it right. It's not that we don't say or do things that we shouldn't do, but it's about having a humble heart and realizing our role in this life and on this planet is to serve others. And to live these open lives in humility for others. Because Jesus certainly did it for us. Amen? See, this morning we have this incredible opportunity to receive Holy Communion. What an incredible gift for us. Where we actually get to be honest and open about the shortcomings in our lives. Confess our sins to God. And as we do that, he is faithful and he's just and he forgives us. And he wipes it all away and he puts us back on the path that he has for us. So in a moment, we're going to bow our heads, we're going to close our eyes, we're going to confess our sins to God. And I would encourage you this morning, let's all deal with our pride. Let's all be honest about how we've made life about us and about how God is gently and mercifully, just as he did with the disciples over and over again, leading us back in view of the cross and what he has done for us. And because of what we know that he's done for us, we now can extend that same grace and mercy and humility to others. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. And again, to see a very vulnerable and transparent passage of scripture that talks about the interaction that you have with some of your closest disciples God, we thank you that it forces us to also examine our own hearts and our lives. And so God, just as they were open and honest and included it in the scriptures by your Holy Spirit from the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, God, we thank you that we now have the opportunity to be open and honest about the shortcomings in our lives. And so with our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, God, would you call out the pride in our lives? Would you call out the times when we've made it all about us and not about others? the way that we haven't modeled what we should model, the way that we have fallen out of your plan and your desire for our lives. So God, now we take this time to confess our sins to you. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you that you love us so much, that you have heard each and every one of our confessions, and that because of your Son, Jesus Christ, because of what he has done for us, that you have forgiven us of all of our sins, and you've cleansed us from all unrighteousness in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
You see this on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this remembering me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to the disciples and said, take, drink, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. It's given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this as often as you drink of it, remembering me. So church, now we come and we receive this incredible grace and forgiveness that is ours in Christ. May that be our prayer today and all week, that God would continue to give us a heart abandoned to him and his ways. Now may this true body and true blood of our Lord and Savior, may it strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith until life everlasting. Amen. Receive the blessing of our Lord this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Hey, thanks so much again for being here today. We hope to see you here next week. God bless. Be safe out there. And uh, let's figure out how we can serve others this week. God bless. We'll see you next week.